0: You turn over in your Bibles to Romans Romans chapter 3 this morning. Guilty as charged. We're looking at, at chapter or verse part 4 of this series, guilty as charged. We've been looking at these verses in Romans chapter 3. And uh, I was reading a couple messages on this text last week, and I found one by Ray Stedman, who used to pastor a church down Peninsula Bible Church. Wonderful man of God, has since gone to be with the Lord, but had a wonderful teaching ministry there. Actually, Charles Swindoll started his ministry there as a, as a youth or college pastor, I think, there with Ray Stedman years ago. Um, but uh, in, in one of his uh, messages, I just thought it was so interesting because he, he, he titled it Peel or Paul. That was the title of his message, and I thought, what in the world is this talking about, Peel or Paul? And I just want to share a section of it from you as a way of introduction this morning because I can, it speaks to the text that we're going to be looking at. Um, he says, I have a quotation that I'd like to share with you. It was not written by Norman Vincent Peel, but it does represent, I think, something of the school of thought he represents. Norman Vincent Peel was the Robert Shuler of, of secular thought and a very positive thinking individual. Um, he says... Uh, it is from an article that appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle. This is obviously years ago. It was called The Art of Being Yourself in the column Words to Live By. And he quoted the article, and I want to read the article for you. Here's what it said. The art of being yourself at your best is the art of unfolding your personality into the man you want to be. By the grace of God, you are what you are. Glory in your selfhood. Accept yourself, but go on from there. Champion the right to be yourself. Dare to be different and set your own pattern. Live your own life and follow your own star. Respect yourself. You have the right to be here, and you have an important work to do. Don't stand in your own shadow. Get your little self out of the way so that your big self can stride forward. Make the most of yourself by fanning the tiny spark of possibility within you into the flame of achievement. Create the kind of self you will be happy to live with all of your life. Be gentle to yourself. Learn to love yourself, to forgive yourself, For only as we have the right attitude toward ourselves can we have the right attitude toward others. Now, pieces of that sounds rather appealing. If I had to say what they appeal to, they probably appeal more to our flesh than our spirit. But parts of what I just read are true. But I think that when we stop and we think of that kind of mentality that is the kind of mentality of the society in which we live and when you place those words and this was where he got peel or paul alongside of the apostle paul's words out of romans specifically specifically chapter 3 it's like night and day there's a big difference And so in his message, and that's all we're going to read of his message, but in his message, he appeals to his people. Are you going to listen to Peel, Norman Vincent Peel, or are you going to listen to the Apostle Paul? So with that in mind, let's read our text for this morning. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, or beginning in verse 9. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The ven- venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In, the paths, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we've been looking at this text now for several weeks, and you're probably eager for me to get on. I understand that. But we we want to make sure that we understand what Paul is saying here. It would be so easy just to kind of break this up into two little points or three little points and skip on to chapter 4. Jump down to verse 21 and then to chapter 4. But I think there's so much here that we would be doing an injustice to the Word of God to just simply skip over and and breeze over this, because this is an area in which we all struggle. You know, the one thing that I don't think that I've done yet, and we're going to be looking at this next week a little bit, but you notice there in verse 9, it says, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, are under sin. And up to this point, I don't know if I've defined sin for you. What is sin? Because it's it's key to our understanding this whole theology of total depravity, this whole thing that Paul is sharing with us, that there's nobody good. What is sin? If you ask the, the average Christian, what is sin? They would say, probably missing the mark, okay? They've been taught that in Sunday school class. Um, It's missing the standard. It's something that we do that displeases God. That would probably be the vast amount of definitions that you would get from people if you just asked them in the average church today. And I would say there's an element of truth in all that, That word sin in the original language does mean to miss the mark. The question is, whose mark are we missing? I gave an illustration weeks ago about us all going down to Pier 39 and standing on Pier 39 and trying to jump to Alcatraz. And I stated that none of us would make it. We would all fall in the water at some point. Not one of you, no matter how long you trained, no matter how hard you trained, no matter who trained you no matter how athletic you are, you would never jump from Pier 39 all the way to the island of Alcatraz. It would be impossible. Some of you may jump a little further than others. And what I want to say is that's kind of where this illustration breaks down when it relates to our own goodness or our own sinfulness. Because in our logical, humanistic thinking, I've heard it taught in Sunday school classes before that you know, well, you know the teacher goes up and he draws a line across the top, and that's God's standard. He's holy. Can any of you reach God's standard? No. The children say no, no, no. You know, who has anyone ever reached God said, Well, only one person, Jesus Christ, right? Has anyone tried to reach that standard? Oh, yeah. You know, and so then they start to draw these vertical lines up to God's holiness, and each one may be a little longer than the other one. I saw one illustration where it said, well, you know, when it says there's none good, no, not one. There may be some people that are 50% good or 60% good or 90% good, and it kind of eked its way up, but nobody's 100% good. Jesus said, you have to be perfect as my Father's perfect. Nobody could do that. But that whole illustration is flawed. And the reason it's flawed is simply because it, it basically relegates sin to something that we do something that we do. That's what we think sin is. It's those bad things we do. Those bad thoughts. Those bad actions. Those bad words that come out of our mouth occasionally. That's sin. That's not God's plan. That's that's sinfulness. I want to change the definition of sin from something that we do to something that we are. That's what we are. We are sin. We are fully corrupt. That's what Paul has been teaching us. It doesn't matter whether you're 50% or 80%. It's irrelevant. God's point is that there's no way you could ever meet my standard, ever. And that's what we've been looking at. We've looked at the, the question, are we better off? And we talked about the Christians there. We believe that he's speaking of the Christians because he already talked about the Jews and the Greeks and the pagans. And now he introduces the idea, are we Christians any better off? No, we're not. And then he uses God's word in verse uh, 10 there. He says, as it is written, and he uses God's word to convict their hearts. If anything's going to convict our hearts, I hope it's God's word. And so he begins to share about the sinful heart. And there's three elements that we've been looking at, the moral nature. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. Righteousness can only come from God. There's only one way to get righteousness. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second thing we looked at was the sinful mind. Not just the moral nature, none righteous but the sinful mind. The idea that no one understands. And we looked at this last week. And you may say, well, I understand quite a bit about you. You know, spiritually, in your own humanness, You cannot understand spiritual truth. That's what the Bible says. The sinful mind does not understand the things of the spirit. Well, today we want to look at the third element of this sinful character that makes us up. This sinful heart. And it's the idea of the captive will. Because he says there in verse As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Okay, that's the the moral nature. No one understands, that's the sinful mind. And then we have the third indictment here. No one seeks for God, the captive will. And we spoke a little bit about this last week. But the idea that no one seeks for God. And we have to not... Just think about this in human terms. Because if we do, we're going to conclude that which is contrary to Paul's teaching. Because as you look around, I'm sure you have friends and family members and and different folks that are around that will say, oh, they're seeking for God. They're seeking for God. Look at all the different world religions. All these people, you know, they do pilgrimages. They do all these things, and they do them all because they're, they're seeking after God. Doesn't the Bible say that we seek God? Doesn't the Bible say that when man surely seeks Jesus, that he'll find him? Can you say he that seeks will find? Matthew 7, he that knocks, it'll be opened. Doesn't Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 say that God is a warder of them that diligently seek him? If you look at Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, look at verse 16. Acts 15, verse 16. He says, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it and the remnant of mankind that they may what? Seek the Lord. Well, wait, you just said nobody seeks the Lord. Doesn't the Bible say that men are to seek God? Isn't that contradictory to what we're saying here this morning? It's really not. It's not contradictory at all. Because the people involved in false religions are seeking something other than the true God, beloved. They're literally running from God to their own man-made system of belief. That's what happens. That's what religion is. It's man's attempt to reach out to a holy God. The people who seek God, who truly seek God, do not seek God on their own initiative. That's what this means. If left to themselves, they would seek other gods. They would would be blinded to the truth. If they seek the true God, it's because God has taken the initiative to seek them out. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And why did they come to him? Verse 44 of the same chapter, John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what, draws him. You don't just wake up one day in your fallenness and say, oh, you know what, I think I'll start seeking God. I think maybe I'll, maybe I'll try Christianity for a while. No. Men do not seek As a matter of fact, Romans, when we went through Romans chapter 1, it says that they run from God. They seek to do their own thing. They seek their own way. Now, they may seek it in some fancy religion that looks nice, that looks timid, that looks peaceful, that looks godly. But if it's not biblical, it's not from the true God. They're seeking gods whom they've manufactured. They've turned their backs on God, on the true God, and they make God in their own image, as Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 23 says, like corruptible men, birds, and four-footed beasts, and creepy things. See, so men who go through this religious path are not running to God, they're literally running away from God. And people who are truly seeking God are not doing it because of their own natural ability and their own natural initiative. They're doing it because the Father has begun to draw them. Because men naturally don't seek God. How could they? As we've been studying, they're what? They're dead. (laughs) Right? They're dead. A corpse doesn't seek anything. A corpse doesn't seek to be released from the casket. A corpse doesn't seek a glass of water. A corpse doesn't seek a fresh breath of air. It doesn't seek anything. It's dead. It's dead. It's blind. It's deaf. It's dumb. It's mute. It's, it's, it's just a corpse. And if you think that, well, that, that may go for everybody, but I'm... I'm a little different, no. That's why he says, no, not one. No one seeks for God. That's a very broad statement, but it's a very precise statement. I want you to understand this morning what it means to seek for God. Just give you a little bit of information on what it means to seek for God. What does it mean to seek after God? Because when we think about that in our churches, we think of people who are seeking out what? Salvation, right? That's what we think. But to seek God is is more than just seeking out God for salvation. Look at Psalm 16. Back in Psalm 16. Because if we're going to say people don't seek God, then we have to understand what seeking God is, right? So Psalm 16. This is what David meant in Psalm 16, verse 8. Psalm 16, verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord always, what? Before me. I have set the Lord always before me. What does that mean? David's saying, look, I'm going to seek God. That means God is number one. God is always before me. Everything that I do, that I say, that I think I run through the grid of God before. What does God say about it? What does God think about it? It means that your focus on everything is related to God. It's as if he put the Lord right in front of him and he said, you know what? Nothing gets to me unless it goes through God first. I have set the Lord always before me. Going, coming, God is the filter of everything. That's the idea. That's really what it means to seek the Lord. Seeking the Lord is very much what Jesus said in the New Testament when he said, seek First, what? The kingdom of God and his, what? Righteousness, right? To do that, to seek first. He didn't say, seek it second or third or fourth. Okay, it's okay if the other thing's in, in line. You know, I understand. You're busy and you got jobs and you got families and you got everything. That's okay. You know, if those things come before you, that's okay. But, you know, no, it's not okay. And see, we live in a society today that we think, It's okay for certain things to come between us and the Lord. I have set my family always before me. I mean, that's the kind of go-to thing when you want to get out of something or when when you have priorities in your life. It's, well, family trumps everything, right? Well, no, not for the Christian. Sorry. Bad choice. I mean, personally, if, if family... Came before everything. I love you, but I'd be in Hawaii right now with my grandkids. (laughs) Watching them grow up. Watching them mature. Watching what's going on in their lives. I wouldn't have to hear it second hand because I'd be there with them. See, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. And I think we have to come to understand what that means. Because we're, we're, we're really missing it big time today in Christianity. You know, we listen to our Christian music, we listen, read our Christian books, we do all this stuff, and somehow we think that, well, that makes us more favorable in God's eyes. When, in fact, it's just another thing on our plate that we probably have too big of a plate to begin with, and we have too much stuff on it. So when it comes down to making priority decisions, well, should I give this time to the church or should I give this time? Well, you know, family, family, family. That's just the way it works. And family's important. Don't get me wrong. But it's not more important than the Lord. See, those are radical words for our our churches today to hear because, you know, we got family life. We got all these people. It's family, 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 family. And I get it. You know, God has given those kids to you as a gift, and you want to do the best you can with them while you have them. And it's a priority. Dads, to instruct your children, moms, to to do the the stuff at home that you need to be doing so that the Lord could use you as parents. But don't you ever allow that to come in the way of serving the Lord or, or the Lord in general. Because David says, I've set the Lord always before me. What about your health? What about your health? Have you set that before you instead of the Lord? Dear brother uh, Don uh, Castanelli, he's back in the, the hospital. His Crohn's disease. And he... Uh, had the opportunity to pick him up and take him to the, the ER several times and stuff. And in our conversation, you know, I said, Well, I hope you're getting better this next week. He goes, Brother, I just want to be there on Sunday morning. I just want to hear the Word of God. I just want to be with the brothers and sisters of Christ. He has a desire to be here. And I'm thinking, If I felt like you, man, I'd be home. I wouldn't, I mean, coming to church would probably maybe be the last thing on my mind. And yet, that's not his attitude at all. Tells the doctor, man, if you can just get me better for Sunday, I'm good. And I thought, wow, what a desire. You know, even his health doesn't come before the Lord. We have to stop and we have to kind of reevaluate, don't we, what we're doing with our priorities. Look over at Philippians chapter 2, because this goes right to the heart of it, and then we'll move on here. Philippians chapter 2. And trust me, this is a message for me just as much as it is for you, okay? I'm not, I am not uh, i don't think I'm preaching to the choir, uh, but uh, I'm preaching to myself, so I know I'm not in the choir. Um, Philippians chapter 2, you know, this kind of just puts it in perspective. Lest you sit there in your religiosity, and say, well, that that may be other people, but no, 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 I I always seek the Lord, I always, well, look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. Verse 21. He's kind of letting him know that I don't have anybody here to, to genuinely concern for their welfare, he says in verse 20, and then he says this, and he's speaking of believers, he says, for they all, what? seek God oh no it doesn't say that does it whoops it says they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ wow what a statement what's that mean everybody's after their own goodies their own stuff not the stuff that Jesus Christ wants them to be after Their own agenda, their own schedule, their own priorities. Not what the Lord has said, hey, here's what I want you to be about. See, this is where the radicalness of Christianity has kind of worn off over the years. You know, in Jesus' time when the disciples and the apostles were teaching, the new church was given birth. I mean, when you came to Christ, if, if you were Gentile or Jew, basically everybody disowned you, especially if you're Jewish. I mean, you were a social outcast if you came to Christ, if you followed the way, they used to call it. And there was a cost involved. You know, you think of some of these people over in Iraq and Syria who are believers, born-again believers. All they have to do is just say, hey, you know, Allah is great or whatever. I mean, you could rationalize. Well, God knows my heart. I don't really mean it, but I'm not going to watch my family get slaughtered. But they don't. They take a stand. Even if it means death. They're not seeking their own interests, beloved. They're seeking those of Christ Jesus. That's what we have to be kind of brought back to that radical belief system that is what the church is all about. I mean, what would your attitude be if someone came in here from the government and said, you know what, if you come here next week, you'll be arrested and thrown in prison? Would I see you here next week? Better question, would you see me here next week? (laughs) You know, we think of those things, and we think, wow, okay, I'm sure... Yeah, I pray that God would give me the grace and the strength to do what would glorify him in that situation, but I can't sit here and tell you, oh yeah, that'd be a no-brainer, that'd be no problem. I don't know. There's a lot to think about. A lot to think about. Think of Pastor Said over there in prison. Two years now. All he's got to do is say a couple words, maybe make a little apology and renounce his faith and move on. Come on. Sure, God would forgive him for that. He forgave Peter, right? It'd be easy to rationalize that, and it's for the greater good. But I think Pastor Zaid is not there for his own interests. He's there for those of Jesus Christ, and he knows what the right thing to do is. We need to be reminded of that. I know our lives are busy. I know we get caught up in things. I know that we're not always perfect. We fall in sin. We do all sorts of things. We can come up with a myriad of examples to say, well, reasons why we shouldn't be following the interests of Jesus Christ. But in the end, they're all wash because God tells us to do that and he wouldn't tell us to do something if we couldn't do it. See, that's just our default position. Our default position is to sink our own interests. It doesn't matter what, what, what it is, what it's concerning. Even in our own families sometimes. I mean, sometimes my wife will, will ask me a question. I'll say, why are you asking me this? <laughs> no reason. I'm just, but I'm, I'm suspect, you know, is there a catch here? What's going on, you know? Why? Because I'm interested in my own interests. I'm thinking, wait, she's trying to get her way, and she's trying to get a way around this. To What's she doing? And I'm sure she thinks the same thing of me at times. That's the way relationships are. But it says in Philippians, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You take that back to the psalm. It says, I've always set the Lord before me. That's what it means to seek the Lord. You set the Lord before you every day. You get out of bed, you set the Lord before you. God, help me do what honors you today. Help me to forget about myself. Help me to forget about my needs and my wants and all that. And, and do what you have asked me to do. The problem is, where well, our minds are so cluttered with all this other garbage, we couldn't see what the Lord wants us to do if he hit us in the face with it. There's a little poem, and it speaks of... Seeking your own interests, says this. Ladies, you'll like this. I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. It was very small, three guests in all, just I, myself, and me. Myself ate up all the sandwiches, and I drank up all the tea. It was also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. (laughs) So many times, beloved, that's how we live our lives. It's all about us. We have to focus, refocus. Paul is saying in Romans no one seeks God, no one seeks the Lord continuously, no one is righteous. I shared that with a Lord guy one time. He said, I've been seeking God all my life, and I haven't found him. Said, that's, that's exactly my point. You've, you've proved my point. You're not seeking God. You're seeking what you think is God. You're seeking religion. You're, you're seeking church membership. You're seeking whatever. Morality. Those things will not get you to God. Those things will take you away from God. We'd like to disguise our intentions of running away from God with religiosity so that it looks good. But when you get right down to the matter and you look at your own heart, what God wants us to do is to bring everything to Him. Everything, a full commitment. This isn't for the faint of heart. Christianity isn't some happy-go-lucky Jesus trail that, you know, you pick the flowers as you trip, you know, skip down the trail. That's not what Christianity is about. And there's going to come a day and time, I think, even in America, where, you know what, we're going to have to own up to the fact that there's going to be persecution involved with our faith, with our personal faith. The unfortunate thing is if somebody talks about us at the water cooler, we think that's persecution. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, we're so far off the mark. And so that kind of covers the sinful heart. The moral nature, there's none righteous. The sinful mind, there's none that understands. And then lastly, the captive will. There's none that seeks for God. Not one. That's why, I mean, I understand their motives. I just question the biblical nature of what they're trying to do when churches try to dumb down a service to appeal to those who, in their mind, are seeking God. <laughs> so you dumb everything down. You don't sing any hymns because they could be offensive to somebody or hard to sing or whatever. And, and you never mention the word sin. You never you know, mention the blood of Christ or whatever. You don't want to offend someone. I mean, when you get to that point... In a church, you're really not running toward God. You're running away. You're doing exactly the opposite of what God has called you to do. And it's all built on the premise that, well, we sure, people seek God. No, they don't. They run from him. None seeks God. The only reason that you're here this morning is because God wanted you here. I don't know what the condition of your heart is this morning. Maybe you hate God. Maybe you're trying to run away from God. You're not sitting in a good place if you're trying to run away from God (laughs) because you're hearing God's truth. And the more you hear of God's truth, what happens is the more accountable you will be. The next thing I want us to look at, just in closing here this morning, is a sinful character in verse 12. Because he says, none is righteous, none understands, no one seeks God. But then he says, all have turned aside. All have turned aside. Sometimes when God says something once, we should pay attention, right? When he says something twice, we might want to pay a little more. When he says it the third time, I think we might want to turn our ears up in volume and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why does God keep on repeating himself? I mean, if you look at, at Psalm 14 uh, 14, 142, or 143, excuse me, 143. 2 and 3, he says, all have turned aside. That's what he says there. Psalm 53, 3, he says, everyone has turned away. And then here in Romans, he says, all have turned away. You would think by the third time we should say, okay, I think God means something here by these words. What does this mean? All have turned aside. Because he wants us to get the point. It's kind of like when you're little... Boy, or your girl is doing something wrong, and you, you tell her no once, you tell her twice, and you think, okay, well, wait a minute, okay, this has turned into a game for them, you know, unless there's consequences, nothing's going to happen. Well, what he says here is, all have turned away, and this is expressed in just these, these two words in the Greek, it means basically all, and a verb which means to deviate, to wander, to depart. From the correct way. Have you ever been on a trip, maybe you had your GPS programmed, and you thought, you know, we're a little hungry, we want to get off the freeway and get something to eat, you know, and you go to get off, you know, turn back, you know, U-turn, you go around, you know, and starts shouting commands at you from the dashboard, you know, finally you're like, turn off, you know, trying to take a break here, we want, to, <laughs> we want to deviate from the path. Well, that's what people do in life. It says they deviate and you say, well, what's the right way? Well, the right way is out- outlined for us in the opening chapter of Romans. It's to recognize God's eternal power, his divine nature, and then to glorify, thank, worship, and serve him. That's what he says. That's the way we should be on. But that's exactly the way that we have turned away from. We've deviated from it. Instead of seeking God and worshiping him in and, and, and thankful service, we have suppressed the truth about him. We've gone our own way, the Bible says. We've even invented false gods to take true God's place. And we find fulfillment in our own intellect, and our own morality. And you notice here, verse 12, it doesn't say some have, does it? It says all. All means all. That's what it means. It means every single one. One time I was eating a bag of chips. And I don't know if it was my wife or my daughter. Somebody asked me, are they all gone? Are there any left for me? And I thought, that's kind of a weird way to say something. Because if they're all gone, then the answer is no. There's none left for you. You know? And and, and see, here he's saying... All means all. All have turned aside. One commentator put, this way, put it this way. As respects well-doing, there is not one. As respects evil-doing, there is not one exception. That's what we need to be reminded of. We've all gone our own way. And it's a way that seems right unto man, the Bible says. There's a way that seems right in our own logic. But at times, we need to be shaken a little bit and realize, wow, this this looks good, but it's really not. So he says, all have turned aside. They're going in the wrong direction direction. And then he says the second thing, verse 12, together, in other words, they're all going down the same path together. It's funny how that works. If you've ever been in a crowd and someone does, starts doing something and all of a sudden everybody starts doing it. It's like, what are they doing? Remember we were at a a, a men's conference one time and, and it was kind of awkward. They had everybody stand up and <laughs> I forget what it was, but I just didn't feel, I, just, I wasn't feeling it, okay? And I'm looking around, and all these guys are, you know, doing this thing they asked them to do. I can't remember what it was, but I just didn't feel comfortable doing it. And I thought, wow, we're like a bunch of just, you know, ooh, yeah, okay, we'll all do this, we'll all do that. He could have said, stand on your head, and I think half the crowd would have. You know, that's, that's our mentality. That's how we are. Young people, that's why the Bible says, be careful the crowd you hang around with, Right? Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. We already know we don't have any morality, so we're, we're in trouble as it is. So you're going to get really, really corrupt if you don't hang around the right people. So he said, we've turned aside. And then he says, and this is a hard one, together they have become, look at that word, worthless. Worthless. The word means corrupt. It means useless. It has the idea that it's something that has no use at all anymore. One time maybe it did, but it doesn't anymore. I think of Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, where Jesus says, If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled underfoot of men. I mean, what do you do with something that's useless? What do you do with something that's corrupt? You throw it out and you start over. I mean, what if I invited you over for breakfast on Saturday morning and you get there and and you see all the, I said, I'm going to make you an omelet. And got all the, you know, ham and the cheese and and the uh, onions and peppers, whatever you like in your omelet. You know, I got all the goodies there. And um, tell me what you want in it. And I make the, the omelet for you and we sit down and, kind of smelling something. I said, what's that smell? Oh, it's it's no big deal. I didn't have enough eggs because one of them was rotten. But I just kind of threw it in anyway. I figured it's only one out of six. So I'm sure it'd be fine. No, you would not eat that omelet. You would say, no, this is corrupt. This is useless. Even though most of it was good. You made it bad because of what you mixed in with it. You ever had coffee and you take the half and half and you pour it in there and all of a sudden you see clumps of stuff floating on top? You know it's not good, right? I remember down at the coffee shop one morning I ordered a cup of coffee and got my half and half and poured it in there. And I said, hey, this is, sorry, I'm not drinking this. Oh, no, it just stirred up. I'm not stirring it up. It's curdled. It's bad. Get a new half and half out of the fridge. Okay. We did this four times. They were all bad. Kept on opening up new, things. I said, I'm sorry, but, you know, I'll take a pass on the coffee this morning. Um, that's the idea here, that together they have become worthless. I mean, what do you, what do, you do with something that's worthless? you throw it out? And I think that that's what we need to be reminded of. That's what we are. All of us are. We're all in this together. And then the last thing there, he says, no one, what? Does good. Oh, no one does good. Not one? No? Well, there's some people that do good. That's really relative goodness, isn't it? I want to show you a couple pictures, and hopefully you get this idea. I don't know if you put them up there yet or not. This was, these are pictures we took when we were over in Dubai. You look at those buildings. These are several thousand feet tall buildings. Go to the next one. This is them building them. You see this, the skyline back there. It's just amazing. I mean, the height of these things is, is overwhelming. Go to the next one. This is up on a building called the Burj Khalifa. We were going up. And I took this shot, and I thought, wow, you can still see the stature of these buildings. They're huge. Go up one more. Still kind of hanging in there, seeing, wow, you you see the shadows. Go up one more. You look down when you're on top. And some of these buildings over here at the top are huge buildings. But you know what? You would never know it. Why? It's all about your perspective. When we were on the ground looking up, I thought, man, you know, huge, tall buildings. And then when you get up there and you look down or when you're flying across the country in an airplane, that's a good example, right? When you fly over San Francisco, everything just looks like little squares. But when you're walking down through downtown San Francisco and you look at the Transamerica building, you're going, wow, that's a building. But from 25,000, 30,000 feet, it's nothing. It's perspective. So when we're here on earth and we're looking at each other and we're comparing our goodness, you know, well, that person's better than this person's, you know, that person's Mother Teresa. This guy's Osama bin Laden. There's obviously somebody's better than the other. But that's not God's perspective. That's not the perspective that Paul is writing from. He's saying, I'm telling you what the word of God says. I'm writing from God's perspective that nobody's good. They're all bad. (laughs) Not even one, he says in verse 12. We don't count goodness the way God counts goodness. We look at the outside. God looks at the heart. And he sees our hearts are desperately wicked. That's why God has allowed us to have a Savior. That's why God had to provide a way out, right? I mean, there's there's nothing... That can take away our sin. Except for the sacrifice of Christ. We sing a hymn once in a while. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than what? All our sins. See, that's the kind of grace that you need because God is pursuing you. He's, he's, he, he's, 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 he wants you to come to Him. He sought us out. He's given us understanding. He's given us a righteousness that's not our own. It's all available to us through Christ. All we have to do is take it. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I... These verses are just, uh, they're simple, they're simple phrases, and yet the consequences of what they say are so devastating, it's really hard to get through them. That no one's righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God, everybody's turned aside, there's no one that does good, we've all become worthless... And, Lord, that really accentuates our need of a Savior. We need a righteousness that's not our own. That's why your word says that if we come unto you, that you'll take our burden, you'll take our sin, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Why? Because after you come to Christ, it's not a matter of trying to make yourself Holy! it's not a matter of trying to earn your salvation it's not a matter of trying to make yourself look good you know you're not that's why you've come to Christ and what a blessing it is to be taken up by that grace have our heart transformed and Lord that's available to each one that's here this morning you just cry out to God Lord be merciful to me a sinner I understand I'm I'm not perfect Therefore, I'm a sinner and I need salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would make yourself known to me in a real way through your word, through your people. Draw me by your Holy Spirit. Change me into what you desire me to be. That's a prayer God will answer. As we leave this place as believers, I pray that we will keep in mind that we need to share this good news of the gospel with those who have yet to hear it anticipating that you'll use us to draw all men to yourself. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.